The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. We have the latest news about October's wine country wildfires. But still lingering is the question, what effect will all that smoke have on the 2017 wine grape crop? We delve into the science behind that question. Sacramento County's Ag Commissioner announces record-breaking farm production here for the 2016 growing year. We have the numbers. Can high-tech make up for the lack of available farm labor? We talk with the experts working on the answer to that question. And it's apple season. We pay a visit to the heart of November's agritourism hotspot here in California, Apple Hill. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. It might be some time before local authorities can estimate the agricultural damage from the recent Northern California wildfires. The Napa County Agricultural Commissioner says his staff has been focused on helping farmers and ranchers with recovery efforts. They say full damage estimates will come much later. One Napa area grape grower says he expects it'll be two years before he knows if his fire-damaged vines will recover. Households impacted by recent wildfires in Northern California could be eligible for help buying food through the USDA's Disaster Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as DSNAP. Benefits will be made available to eligible people who either lived or worked in Butte, Lake, Mendocino, Napa, Nevada, Sonoma, and Yuba counties at the time the wildfires began on October 8th or have been affected by the disaster and meet certain DSNAP eligibility requirements. Approved households will receive one month of benefits. Let's not forget about the farm animals that had to be evacuated from the wildfires. As owners return their animals to the fire zone, they'll find burned pastures that'll need time to recover. UC Cooperative Extension specialists say it can take two to three years for burned pastures to return to normal. Authorities say efforts will be needed to heal the soil and prevent erosion during the winter rain. Questions still persist about the smoke that was generated by the recent wine country wildfires. Did that smoke adversely affect grape quality? The Sacramento Bee reports that it's far too early to speculate about the potential impact of the smoke on the grapes and the wine. Fortunately, the October fires came late in the growing season. The fruit may not have been as susceptible to the kind of smoke damage that growers and winemakers saw when fires spread through Mendocino, Trinity, and Humboldt counties relatively early in their growth cycle back in 2008. Overall, the smoke that may tarnish some North State wines from the 2017 vintage is of relatively small concern to vinters. An estimated 75 to 90 percent of the crop had been picked before those fires took place. More to the point, though, are the more serious losses. The fires killed 43 people, destroyed an estimated 5,700 structures, displaced thousands of residents, and seared almost a quarter of a million acres. Of the approximately 1,200 wineries scattered about the hills of Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties, fewer than 10 were destroyed or extensively damaged, that according to the Trade Group Wine Institute. There's a lot of science behind the effects of smoke on wine grapes. With more, here's the USDA's Stephanie Ho. 
Wildfires in California tore through Napa and Sonoma counties, which are famous for their wines. The damage exclusively to vineyards itself has not been determined yet. Actually, that process can take a while. Rhonda Smith is a viticulture farm advisor with the University of California Cooperative Extension in Sonoma. The assessment of the damage inside that vineyard to determine whether it is minor damage or a total loss, that can take a lot of time. And so that has to do with utilizing some assistance with USDA uh, risk management agency, which would be locally the Farm Service Agency. She points to one issue. Well, there is a concern for what we call smoke taint, which occurs when smoke from wildfires settles over a vineyard and certain aroma compounds will be increased in the juice and subsequently the wine. And so grape growers who had fruit remaining in their vines prior to the fires, and there weren't very many of the very few acres were out there that had that. We had approximately 85 to 90 percent of all the grapes had been harvested prior to October 8th. So she says this is mostly a potential problem for grape growers who still had fruit on the vines. What they've done is many of them have taken fruit samples into wine labs to have an assessment done on two particular compounds which are associated with the character in wine known as smoke taint. At the same time, she says there are still many things that are not known about how to best mitigate any negative effects. Winemaking protocols can be modified and there needs to be some other research done on identifying perhaps other compounds that would be better correlated to the perception of taint rather than just those two aroma compounds. And so there is research that is going to be initiated or has initiated already with these uh, current wildfires in California through UC Davis and Washington State University. Meanwhile, will any reduction in wine production in Napa and Sonoma counties have much impact on overall U.S. wine production? If you look at, you know, what it's likely to mean in terms of overall volume, it probably won't be as big of an impact as you might expect. Between Napa and Sonoma, where the fires were kind of centered, those two counties really only represent something like 10% of California's production. That was Steve Ronacleave, a global sector strategist for beverages for Rabobank. They're not the biggest movers in, in terms of volume. They are absolutely the most important regions in terms of value. And so he says any impact is not going to show up in total volume of wine available. It's really going to be more on the absolute value, the value of sales. There's a large number of wineries located there that focus on smaller lots of very high value wines and high quality wines. And that's become the face of the California wine industry. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner Julie Jensen recently addressed the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors. And she says agriculture in our county had a very good 2016. Somewhat surprising is the fact that although in uh, the production year of 2016 we were still in the drought, it proved to be our highest valued agricultural production to date. We actually had $507,064,000 worth of agricultural production. And one of the surprising increases came from nursery stock production. Our leading commodities remain fairly stable, with the exception of nursery stock moving up into the top five and replacing aquaculture, and rice falling out of the top ten and being replaced by processing tomatoes. Wine grapes continue to rule as king in Sacramento County for the past eight years, and milk continues to hang on as number two. 
California is the third top producing state of pears behind Washington and Oregon, and Sacramento County is the top pear producing county in California. They remain as our third top crop. Then in fourth place, poultry, primarily turkeys, is our fourth place commodity, and rounding out the top five is nursery stock. It hasn't been in the top five since 2010, due primarily to the slump in building and also new housing. So you would think that the drought would also depress the nursery industry, but the prolonged drought actually encouraged many homeowners to tear out their water-thirsty landscapes and lawns and replace them with xeriscapes, uh, using plants that are much more thrifty with their water requirements. That, together with the slowly recovering uh, home building industry, has helped the nursery industry return to the top five, and we're glad to see them there. Rounding out the top 10 for agricultural production in Sacramento County for 2016, cattle and calves, aquaculture, field corn, alfalfa hay, and processed tomatoes. Here's this week's California crop report. Cotton continues to be harvested for lint and seed. Farmers are expecting a decent yield. Alfalfa fields are still going strong and continue to be irrigated, cut, and baled. Sorghum fields are being harvested. Most summer crops have been harvested and fields were being worked. Winter wheat planting is ongoing. The rice harvest here in California, about 90% complete. Stone fruit harvest is nearly finished. Soil amendments were being applied to some stone fruit orchards. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Thompson seedless grapes are being rolled and picked up for raisins. Pomegranate and kiwi fruit harvest is ongoing. Persimmon harvest is underway with the cooler weather helping external color. Early navel oranges are being picked and tested for maturity. The Valencia orange harvest is finishing up. Citrus orchards are being skirted and trimmed for the coming season. Melagold grapefruit, limes, and lemons are being picked. The heavy olive crop harvest continues. Dates are still being harvested, with completion expected by the end of November. Strawberry field work is focusing on bed preparation, laying new drip line, and planting strawberry transplants. Almond harvest is essentially complete for the year. Some soil amendments are being applied in almond groves. Pistachio and walnut harvests are continuing. Pumpkins and specialty pumpkins are being harvested. Certain producers were picking tomatoes, sweet corn, okra, cucumber, squash, and peppers. Commercial plantings of yellow squash, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables are developing well, and some early varieties are almost ready for harvest. Over in Monterey County, many late-season lettuce, broccoli, and cauliflower crops are growing. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland, though, continues primarily to be in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were moved down from higher elevation ranges in anticipation of snow. Sheep are grazing harvested grain fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Agriculture is relatively slow adopting new technology. The Central Valley Business Journal reports that some crops indeed do require less manpower than they did years ago. However, many delicate crops like cherries are still harvested the same way they were a thousand years ago because advances in agricultural automation have primarily been mechanical and not software-based like many other industries. This will increasingly become a problem for California's $47 billion ag industry, 
as a couple of long-term macro trends continue developing. First, countries such as Mexico, China, Chile, and parts of the Middle East have rapidly progressed with agricultural industries and lower labor costs. To remain competitive, California farmers need to continually increase per-acre yields. Secondly, local ag continues to experience a severe and growing shortage of farm laborers. Mexico's improved economy, current immigration policies, and a lack of interest in farm jobs by American youth are all contributing to this dire situation, despite a 50% pay increase for farm workers since 1996. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Fortunately, recent developments in artificial intelligence and machine learning software are about to give Central Valley farmers a fighting chance to win in the competitive global food production marketplace. Upcoming developments will soon combine agricultural software, computer hardware, and durable farm equipment to build comprehensive solutions that significantly improve farm materials conservation, foliage strength, yield mapping to address yield variation, and autonomous self-driving tractor capabilities. Accurate analysis will one day help farmers here increase yields through plant-by-plant optimization instead of field or orchard optimization. Row crop farmers know just how technologically advanced modern equipment is. Someone who knows about equipment, Nick Tyndall of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, is quick to point out the average tractor has more computer code within its operating system than the space shuttle. Actually, outside of the military sector, there isn't an industry that's more technologically advanced than American production agriculture. It's everything from satellite imaging to drones to GPS to genetics on the plant side, high-end chemistry. Your average implement tractor setup has about six to ten computers. The senior advisor on rural infrastructure to Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue is well aware of the economic, environmental, and efficiency benefits to these technologies when used as part of precision agriculture strategies. Janine Miller offers this example. With internet-connected precision spreaders, they can apply fertilizer in a square inch and know in a few months' time exactly where that was and go back and put the feed in the exact same place. We know that that kind of thing can enable an 18% increase in yield and reduce costs by $20 an acre. You may have heard the word internet used in Miller's illustration. Nick Tyndall says the future of agriculture productivity and efficiency is bright with the help of broadband, wireless, and other forms of connectivity. We expect in the next 100 years to see more productivity gains from the manipulation of big data than we saw in the last 100 years from mechanization. Yet the current lack of available, reliable connectivity to all these computerized systems in the actual fields themselves is perhaps the single biggest challenge evolving precision agriculture today. That future where we're collecting data points on every single plant and every single field from the time it's planted to the times it's harvested and manipulating that to create real-time situations, real-time actionable data is only possible if we have wireless connectivity in those fields to upload telemetrics data, to have the transfer of that soil information to your agronomist. You know, we can't be running around thumb drives. It's just simply not going to be efficient enough. He has that challenge is coupled by creating wireless and broadband services that not only cover the farm fields, but do so in a way that is affordable to producers and provides them with high-quality connectivity. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
A survey recently released by the California Farm Bureau shows immigration policy still harms agriculture in the same capacity as seen in a similar survey in 2012. The informal survey showed that more than half of responding farmers had experienced employee shortages during the past year. California Farm Bureau President Paul Winger says the worker shortage impacts farm operations. We have seen some people making some changes in their cropping patterns to go to more mechanized type of crops and trying to deal with farm labor contractors, but the bottom line is we have a broken immigration system. Farmers and ranchers are having to make decisions not based on the markets, but based on the availability of labor. Winger says the shortage in farm labor means a more competitive situation for farmers to source workers. You see a lot of farm labor contractors going into other fields and orchards offering increased wages. Rob Peter to pay Paul, get somebody to come over and pick their crop and leave the the others. When you don't have that available supply, it means there's a big fight over those folks that are there, and at the end of the day, somebody's going to lose. He says the survey gives Congress proof that agriculture needs comprehensive immigration reform. Instead of just talking and saying there's a problem, having a survey like this that goes out does help folks in Congress see that we have a problem on the farm with labor and find available labor, and here's the specifics. So these kinds of surveys give credibility to what the American Farm Bureau, our state farm bureaus are saying. Michael Clements, Washington. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey takes a final look at the 2017 rice crop across the United States with a special emphasis on the good news out of California's rice country. The rice harvest, this will be our last look at this for the season, virtually complete 98%, ahead of the five-year average of 93%, and last year's 96%. We have been watching the delayed crop in California Harvest, though, advancing very rapidly in California, nearly wrapping up, going from 60 to 92 percent harvested just in the last week. So that 92 percent puts California's rice ahead of the five-year average of 84 percent and last year's 84 percent with a very uh, quick uh, finish for that crop despite some delays early in the season. When one hears the phrase precision agriculture, their first thought may be on advances in row crop fields. You know, computers on combines and implements, various onboard sensors, even such technology in irrigation systems. However, the dairy industry also has its share of examples of precision ag at the farm level. Indiana dairy farmer Joe Kelsey says start at the hardware level with your laptop or other computing system. Connected to that computer is the parlor management system. In the milking parlor, there are milk meters at every station. There are transponder readers at every station. And then the output that tells what's going on at each of those stations real time in the milking parlor. In addition, each dairy cow has an electronic leg band transponder attached. Information is gathered of when she came into the parlor, how long it was since she came in with the milker attached, how long the milker was on, how much milk she yielded, and over what period of time. So flow rates are even captured. And then how long it took for the milker to come off and that cow to exit. And much like your fitness watch or wristband, yes, the leg band can record step counts. We have a health checklist that comes out every morning. It prints out the cows that might be a little off on milk, maybe a little off on steps, and the herdsmen need to go take a look and see if these cows are really having a problem or just maybe it's a little bit of aberration in the data. All that information, according to Kelsey, is available real-time, gathered and organized to fit whatever data trends a producer is looking for. 
And that data is connected with our technology provider so that the company can take over the computer, if you will, and help us set up reports or parameters that they see that is working around the country or around the world or other dairies. They can also help us troubleshoot if there's a glitch or a bug or that sort of thing. And then we can download that data and then share it. So, for example, we've done that with our semen provider company, and then they can get results on how we are doing with some of their bulls and performance as far as the conception rate and that sort of thing. Kelsey adds that his operation owns the data collected from these systems to be used or shared at their discretion. As for the future... As cloud-based computing becomes kind of more normal, when these different systems can communicate or pass data across, so much more helpful today than what it was, say, even five years ago. But I look to tomorrow and think, how great will it be to kind of, in a real-time fashion, be able to share this data amongst our team members at any given point and any given place, and different systems will communicate with each other. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There's good news for water storage here in California. The Bureau of Reclamation Central Valley Project began the water year 2018 with an 8.9 million acre feet of water in six key Central Valley Project reservoirs. Trinity, Shasta, Folsom, New Melones, Millerton, and the San Luis Reservoir. This is 145% of the 15-year average annual carryover of 6.2 million acre-feet and 4 million acre-feet more than the amount we saw the year before. Well, we all want to know, is it going to be a wet winter? Much of California could be in for a drier winter if the building consensus calls for a weak La Nina pattern and that turns out to be accurate, that according to the National Weather Service. The Federal Climate Prediction Center issued its winter outlook back on October 19th, and the Capitol Press reports that for California, similar conditions early last fall led to one of the wettest seasons on record. However, since 1950, only 10% of weak La Nina winters have been wet. 60% of such winters turned out dry, and that includes 2011-2012, which was the first of the five years of drought. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue made no secret about one of the recommendations that was made in a report he delivered recently to the president. One of the specific things that we're proposing to the president in our Rural Prosperity Task Force that we hope to be picked up is uh, broadband connectivity across America. He says it is vital that all of the country's young people, wherever they live, have good connectivity to the Internet, which he described as the modern 21st century electronic interstate. We've got entrepreneurs around the around the rural America who wanted to design products and have products that Jack Ma with Alibaba would love to have on his website so his customers in China and Asia could uh, could use those products. What kinds of inventions is he talking about? Maybe a new app for agriculture, maybe a, a software product for precision, precision agriculture. But he adds they only can do that if they have the broadband infrastructure they need. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Negotiations on reworking the North American Free Trade Agreement are due to resume in Washington, and the American Farm Bureau joined in a grassroots campaign to underscore the importance of trade for the rural economy. The Farm Bureau announced it's joining a coalition called Farmers for Free Trade. Its purpose? To mobilize rural residents in favor of trade agreements. The Farm Bureau says 20% of U.S. farm income stems from ag exports. Final numbers for the U.S. citrus crop for 2016-17 reveal... Estimate for all citrus production was down to 7.8 million tons, which represents an 11% decline for last year. And USDA economist Gustavo Ferreira says the year-over-year production decline covered all categories except... 
Tangerine and mandarins was the only crop experience I increased this year. Oranges, for both fresh consumption and processing for orange juice, make up two-thirds of the U.S. citrus crop. And for this past season, total production came in at over 5.1 million tons. Which translate into a 50% decline compared to last season. Production declines were reported in the three major orange-growing states, California, Florida, and Texas. By commodity, U.S. naval production saw a decline of 13% this year, whereas U.S. Valencia oranges, a crop was 18% smaller than last season. So the largest reductions in production in orange happened in Valencia, which happens to be also in Florida for the most part. Turning to other citrus crops, Ferreira says despite a year-over-year increase in California grapefruit production. Grapefruit also shrunk by 15% and slipped down to 682,000 tons this year. Due to another year of lower production and a short season overall in Florida. As for lemons... Lemon production only suffers relatively a small decline of 2%, with some losses in one state and gains in other states. Ferreira says although production totals for all citrus were down year over year, the crop value was relatively unchanged due to changes and some increases in prices. The crop value for this season estimated at $3.4 billion with a B dollars. One example of this lower production, higher price correlation is in naval oranges. This has been seen in higher prices in the fresh market at the retail level. And grapefruit prices on average rose 12% from the previous season. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. While they finish their harvest of baby lima beans, California's farmers will be keeping their eyes on Japan. That's because most of the beans they produce will ultimately be sold there. Japanese manufacturers use California-grown baby lima beans to make a sweet bean paste. It's a key ingredient in traditional confections. In any given year, half to three-quarters of California's baby lima beans are exported to Japan. And now... This may be fall, but we are so tropical today. And to prove it, here's a love song to a nice tropical food. Lovely avocado. And what do we need to know about avocados? Avocados are a fruit. Amazing, amazing. Have I blown your mind yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. We're here at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington in the Veducation Tent with Chief Vegetator Laura Popilski. So is that really all we need to know? The avocado is a fruit? Oh, no goodness, no. Hope not, or this will be a very short segment. Now, there are many of us who just haven't had that much experience with avocados except in the guacamole. So, Laura, uh, if we want to try something with this fruit, then at the store, how do we choose the best ones? If you're looking to eat that avocado today and maybe make guacamole, or put it in your salsa or use it as a spread on a sandwich, you'd probably want a softer avocado. So you're going to just give them a little squeeze and if they're just a little soft, that's what you're looking for. Uh, But if I really don't have immediate plans for that avocado, what then? You could buy one that's a little harder and you can ripen it on your countertop for about three to five days. Ripen it even faster if you put it in a brown paper bag with an apple. And if they're at just the right ripeness for you, you can store them in your fridge for about five days. But she's been telling people here that if we're going to cook with the avocado, probably the best to have uh, one that's a little more firm. It'll be easier to cut. Ah, yeah. Speaking of of cutting them, though, and getting them ready for use, Laura's uh, wielding a chef's knife uh, there. Uh, She's got the avocado down on the cutting board. She's moving the avocado around that knife, cutting it lengthwise from top to bottom. And uh, now what do you do? Split those two halves and 
there's lots of different neat ways to get that pit out of the middle. Yeah, I bet. But if you put your avocado cut side up and whack that pit with a knife, it will stick in. You give it a little gentle twist, and the pit will come right out. Uh. There you go. It'll come right out. Aha, uh -huh, Laura. Yeah, I see a little electric roaster out here. You're slicing little wedges of avocado, and what's next with that? I'm going to drizzle a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, and garlic, a little lime juice, and roast them at 400 degrees for about 15 minutes. And then what do you do with it? Eat them. Oh. That's a novelty. Of course, a lot of people use avocados for, you know, smoothies or uh, a substitute spread on a sandwich. You could also blend avocado, cocoa powder, and a little bit of sweetener, and you can make avocado chocolate mousse. Uh-huh. You've got this uh, green avocado stuff, and you got the chocolate, and it's hard to uh, describe the color of this thing, though, you know? It's not a very attractive shade of brown, <laughs> but it tastes great. <laughs> okay. For more recipes using avocados, go online to Watch Cooking USDA. So, uh, Laura, let's eat this mousse before somebody sees it, okay? Sure. All right. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It doesn't taste bad. As a new water year begins, state officials say they want to be better able to predict when atmospheric river systems will drench California with heavy precipitation. The State Department of Water Resources said this week it'll work with government and academic researchers to improve long-range weather forecasting. The DWR said current seven-day forecasts are about 70% accurate, but 14-day forecasts have only a 7% accuracy rate. The American Farm Bureau Federation's Fall Harvest Market Basket Survey found the total cost of 16 foods that can be used to prepare seven meals was $51.13. The cost is up $1.43, or about 3%, from the survey results a year ago. AFBF Director of Market Intelligence John Newton says higher retail prices for several foods, including bacon, chicken breast, and orange juice, were behind the increase. Bacon prices increased significantly, and we also saw orange juice prices up quite a bit from where they they were last year. We did see some prices come down from where they were last year, most notably salad mix. The drought last year in California really pushed salad and lettuce prices up, and we've seen some relief in those prices this year. He says the prices included in the survey reflect consumer demand. For example, consumers are purchasing more bacon, driving supplies down, and prices up. If you think about what's happening in the food service sector, consumers are enjoying more fatty foods, and bacon is the sexy food item at the restaurant and at the retail space. Bacon inventories this year are down from where they were in prior year levels, and as a result, we saw pork belly prices rise to highs we haven't seen in recent years, and that's reflected in those retail bacon prices. The Fall Harvest Market Basket Survey is part of four food price trend surveys conducted by AFBF during the year. Compared to six months ago, when the cost of a summer cookout came in at $50.03, the overall cost of the market basket items increased by about 2%. The next survey will be the Thanksgiving survey. Looking at the overall food price trends that we've seen in recent years, food prices have remained relatively flat. So I would expect this year consumers will continue to see a reasonably priced Thanksgiving dinner for 2017. The full results of the Fall Harvest Survey are available at www.fb.org. Michael Clements reporting. This time of year, agritourism in Northern California turns its focus to the Sierra foothills, in particularly Apple Hill region, east of Sacramento. According to Yelp, here are the three highest-rated apple orchards worth visiting. High Hill Ranch in Placerville, Boa Vista Orchards in Placerville, and Rainbow Orchards in Camino. Remember Betty Davis as poor Apple Annie in the movie Pocket Full of Miracles? 
1961 movie, she's selling bright red apples, most likely the red delicious variety, which at one time in this country was the king of all apples. It was back in the day when people liked to buy apples because they looked good. Doug Rains is a research technician at the Agriculture Department's Appalachian Fruit Research Station in Kearneysville, West Virginia. They do all kinds of research work on all kinds of fruit trees, including apples. And yes, that bright red apple has become an icon, hasn't it? Kids and artists almost always portray apples as bright and consistently red. Well, it all began back when this song was a big hit. 1875, on Jesse Hyatt's farm in Iowa, a seed from one of his apple trees must have mutated. It took root, and despite efforts to cut it down, it kept coming back over and over. Finally, he just let it grow, and 10 years later, it produced a crop of beautiful red apples. He later sold what he called the Hawkeye variety to a nursery, which renamed it Red Delicious to compete with the then-new Golden Delicious, proclaiming the red one as the Marvel apple of the age. And by the time this song was a hit... Yes, in the 1940s, Red Delicious was the most popular apple. And even into the 1980s, Red Delicious accounted for about 75% of Washington State's apple production. And Doug Rain says it wasn't just because it tasted better than the other apples. In fact, quite the opposite. And it wasn't just because it was a pretty red apple, although the color did have something to do with farmers wanting to grow it. Growers could pick them and get them on the market because they looked like they were ripe. But when people ate them, they realized that they really weren't ripe, that they hadn't developed enough flavor. They were still very starchy. The red color was there regardless of the ripeness, so growers could, as he said, pick those red apples earlier, get them to market sooner, get paid quicker. Plus, even though maybe the apples were not fully ripe, that was an advantage for long-distance shipping. If they pick them when they're not quite ripe, they ship better than apples that are ripe. Probably one of the reasons Red Delicious was so popular was because it was a good shipper. You know, it could travel from the West Coast to the East Coast and still arrive at the stores in pretty good shape. Sometimes they'd be ripe when shoppers bought them and would taste pretty good, other times not so good. And finally, in the late 1990s, the Red Delicious variety began to lose market share. Production dropped 40%, and Doug says... With farmers markets and things like that, and a lot of growers are picking fruit that's tree ripe, and then people are getting to appreciate what fruit tastes like when it's fully mature and ripe. So slowly over time, people are becoming educated and finding other options to Red Delicious. Sweet ones like Golden Delicious, Honeycrisp, Fuji's, Galas, John of Gold Sweet. And on and on. Red Delicious, still the most common apple grown in the U.S., but over 60% of those apples are now shipped to other countries. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Steve Lyle from the California Department of Food and Agriculture files this report about Apple Hill. And it's not just apples anymore up there. It's a warm October morning at Abel's Apple Acres. And the parking lot is filling up fast. In the kitchen, Evelyn Abel and her staff are getting ready for the busiest weekend of the year. The two middle weekends of October are our biggest. We try to get people to know we're open through Christmas. A lot of people still think it's just October. Abel's Apple Acres is a popular destination for visitors to Apple Hill, a region of more than 50 small family farms and ranches in the Sierra foothills near Placerville. Each uh, farm has different items, like uh, some of them have apple turnovers and apple pies. All the apples, caramel apples. <laughs> we just eat all day, I think. Agricultural tourism is growing nationwide as farm owners add on-the-farm sales and other activities to diversify their operations and increase their profits. All right, as you pick, you need to get a hold of your apple. 
and give it a twist like a doorknob. You'll twist it and pull. It's going to come off there without breaking the branch, okay? I never thought we'd be like this, no. Tourism, no, it's a major item. Apple Hill is now vibrant and prosperous, but 50 years ago, its future looked far from certain. For founder Eddie Delfino and his neighbors, going into the tourism business was a matter of necessity. In 1958, this area produced 62,000 tons of pears. Pear decline came in in 1958, and by 1963, the production had dropped from that to 10,000. We were trying anything to, to save the industry. There's an area in Southern California that's called Oak Glen, where they have ranch marketing. So we went down and saw their operation, and that's how we started Apple Hill. An important factor in Apple Hill's success is the variety of activities available to visitors, not just during the fall, but year-round. Started out for usually the month of October, but we've been trying to expand that season, you know, with Christmas trees and soft fruits, the cherries and peaches in the spring. Pumpkins, of course, it's Halloween and people love, it. and it's just like a Christmas tree. They look for that special one. We have a straw maze, and I love horses, so we put my horses to work. And in the wineries in the area, they've helped a lot too. People come up to the wineries. And for growers, agritourism can provide the means not only to sell their produce without taking it to market, but also to guarantee the integrity of their land and the prosperity of their families for generations to come. This would be houses. This wouldn't be a ranch. This would be probably cut up into houses, most of the area. It's a great family thing. All my kids, now my grandkids, and now the great kid, grandkids are coming. They've learned how to work. They've all learned good values, and it keeps my family close. There's the famous K, that these will go in the oven. We've probably made about 20 trays of these today, and we're not even that busy today. Apple Hill's going to celebrate its 50-year anniversary. Wow, if we could go another 50 years, what a good testimony that would be for us, right? Because the old-timers, my father-in-law's 82, he did a great job to get us where we are right now. Let's see what we can do to go the next 50 years. Farmers can spend thousands of dollars getting the latest weather forecasts, including long-range forecasts. Well, for less than 10 bucks, you can get a long-range forecast from the Old Farmer's Almanac. And they're out with their 2017-2018 winter predictions for California's Central Valley foothills and mountains. And the Old Farmer's Almanac is predicting that winter will be cooler than normal with rainfall above normal in the north and near normal in the south of California. The coldest periods will occur from late November into early December and into early February. Mountain snows will be above normal with the stormiest periods in early to mid-November and early and late January. So in summary, it's going to be cold and wet for California, but cold and dry in the Pacific Northwest. Part of the methodology the Old Farmer's Almanac uses is sunspot activity. Sustainability. It's a term, as well as practices, found in a growing number of ag operations these days. But going around the room among different sectors of the farm industry, one will find that the definition of sustainability 
differs based on the needs and practices of their own operations and businesses. Chris Lurson of Case IH offers a cyclical approach to sustainability. Sustainability is sometimes just about efficiencies and then trying to really take advantage of what we have and using some tools that are out there to help make ourselves more efficient and hopefully in the end increase our profitability which obviously is going to result in our sustainability. And how these efficiencies, or the blueprints to reach such, are discovered is through big data technologies and information gathering, according to Liz Hunt of Syngenta. Farm record keeping and how that really plays into the sustainability for the farmer. And what that allows growers to do is to track what their practices are that are going on the farm, look at their data. You know, I like to think of it, you can't manage what you don't measure. So being able to measure that, being able to look at your records, being able to see what's happened from year to year and make decisions from that helps the grower from a sustainability standpoint. Now, one way that such information can generate a sustainable model for a farmer or a business is its use to tell the story of how and where consumers get their products. As Emily Johans of Keiko Isom explains. What things like record keeping and documentation and storytelling do is pair data with the actual emotional connection that a consumer wants to know about their products as they're buying them. It's a complex issue because there are so many links in that chain between the farm and the consumer, but that's exactly what we work on day in and day out. Two unique perspectives of ag sustainability are offered by Terry McClatchy, a farmer cooperative-based soybean processor and refiner, AGP. In addition to the view from the farm level, as we do farming practices that just run through and you're not tilling the soil as much as we used to in the past, each time you reduce that pass through, you're increasing the sustainability. And really, in today's world, a farmer has it down pat. We are way more sustainable than farmers in other countries. There are the processing plants operating in a sustainable fashion. A lot of it has to do with capturing heat or capturing energy as it goes through. A lot of the process, we're heating up beans and that's done through steam, but then we take the steam and use that heat to start heating up other processes. So we're continually using the BTUs until there's nothing left is the long and short of it. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.